Well, good morning, everyone. The summer's officially begun. If you have kids in school, they are out of school. And because the summer's begun, we're going to do a new series. We'll do parables this uh, summer. Great insight. If you'll turn in your Bibles, if you brought those to Luke chapter 10, we'll look at certainly one of the more famous uh, parables. It's, uh, it's so famous, we etched in glass right there some of the, the words of this parable. Uh, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus is the greatest theologian that has ever lived, no doubt. But if he were alive today, I do doubt that he would be hired in any of the seminaries in the West. And the reason is, is because he is, while he's the greatest theologian that's ever existed, he's a metaphorical theologian. He creates the meaning in in metaphors or similes or parables, stories. The story reveals the truth. And that's not a lot, that's not the way we like to do things in the West. We consider, you know, logic and reason with, with outlines and those sorts of things as the definers of truth, but that's not the way Jesus did it. Jesus did it as a playwright or a poet, not as a philosopher. And in the Western tradition, we, we think if it's, if it's true and our theology needs to be, uh, you know, like, contained in logical syllogisms. And that would be great. Don't get me wrong. That would be fine if the, the, the capital of our faith were Athens or Paris. But the home of origin of Christianity and Judaism is Jerusalem. And the capital is, is, is Jerusalem. It's Israel. It's a Middle Eastern religion. And, and if you have a perspective of an enlightened scientific worldview, and that's how you think all things can be known, you can know some truth, but not the deeper truths, and mostly just facts. You'll just know facts. Metaphors, parables take you to places that transcend just data. If a picture contains a thousand words of, of abstract reason, then a story with truth in it is a hard drive full of soul speak. You, a story with truth, it engages the mind and the spirit and the soul and has potential for life change. That's why Jesus was a metaphorical, a parabolic, right, uh, theologian. He told parables for at least a couple of reasons. One, is because so many people in his audience knew the answers to some of the questions, but they didn't know what the answers meant. And then uh, kind of more specifically, the other reason he uses parables in his teaching is because of so many people had already rejected him. They were threatened by his power or by his wisdom. And so Jesus decided to, in light of them rejecting the, the promised Messiah, he said, I will communicate the truth using these stories and, and, and use them to, uh, so that only the Spirit of God could help you find the meaning. They, people were now confronting Jesus, and they were just asking questions to, like, entrap him or to, to trick him up or right, get him in trouble. And so Jesus backs away and says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to you now at this other level, and if your heart isn't tender towards the Spirit of God, you won't even know what I'm talking about. 
So when, when he does have these confrontations with people and they ask him questions, he usually just answers the question by asking another question back. And then he goes after, with these stories, he goes after what the heart of the issue is. And the heart of the issue, it's the heart of the person. I think if Jesus were here today, a modern exchange would go like this. A scientist came up to Jesus and stood up and said, Jesus, I have a question. Okay, right. Uh, Are people predestined or do they choose their uh, eternal life? And Jesus would say, well, you've, you've heard it say, said that there are no such thing as stupid questions, but I say, sure there are. There are stupid questions. Scientists answer this question. Light, is it a particle or is it a wave? And the scientist said, well, so here's both or neither, or you know what? We can't know. Well, we can't know for sure. And Jesus would say, yeah, that, go and do that. But the point of the whole exchange was to, to confront the person asking the question, why are you even thinking those things? What does that say about the condition of your soul that you're arguing over things that you can't know? That's the kind of exchange that's taking place here today. We're looking at the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it starts by introducing the character that's involved in asking the questions. And this is an authority of the law, uh, uh, law the Old Testament law, a lawyer. Some translations actually say that. And, and this law expert is not sincere in his questioning. He is going to meet with Jesus to, to trip him up, to probably show himself off to be a scholar at the expense of this itinerant speaker. He's going to put Jesus in his place, all the while exalting his status in the academic community. And so he's practiced this conversation in his head. He's going to ask this question, and then Jesus is going to respond this way, and then he's going to move over here. Yeah, checkmate, gotcha. That's how it's supposed to happen. It does not happen that way. So here's, uh, it starts like with this. He says, one day an expert of, in, in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, you've got to love Jesus because he's, he's being patient with this man because even his question kind of contradicts itself. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You've heard it said there are no stupid questions. No, there are. Because to inherit something, you don't do anything. To inherit something, someone has something of value, they will that thing to you, then they die, and then you get it. You don't do anything. But anyway, Jesus says this. Okay, fine. Uh, I'll just, I'll just, you're the expert of the law. You are an authority of the Torah. What does the Torah say about inheriting eternal life? What do you do? And like every good Jew during those uh, years, they knew by heart two passages in the Old Testament, and it goes like this, the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself, right there in the glass. And Jesus said, right, do this and you will live. Next question. The guy doesn't sit down. He's like, okay, wait, let me think about this. That's, that's what I do. Just love the Lord purely, totally, with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind all the time. Got it. 
<laughs> really? Okay. And then love my neighbor as myself. That's where he kind of gets tripped up. And what happened here is the, 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 the scholar, he, he like sets a trap and then springs the trap on himself. He's like a kid, like in, if it ever happened to you in school where you got to write your own test and then he fails the test that he wrote. He's thinking in his head, okay, wait a minute. Uh, okay. The first one, but the second one, all you can think of in, in light of this, the way the story progresses, he must have people's faces come to mind or maybe some names. Love your neighbor as, your, as myself. Like even my mother-in-law. I mean, he must be thinking about ways to get out of how to love your neighbor because he asks the question, you know, he does, he does what we do when we're confronted with a passage of Scripture that's clear what it says. We say, could you define the terms, please? I want to know exactly what these words mean because I want to make sure I'm doing this right because I want to justify, it says in the passage, he's justifying his actions or probably his inactions. So he says this, the man wanted to justify his actions and he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And here's Jesus not playing, you know, on this little guy's sandbox and he's, he's not using, you know, traditional definitions of my, your neighbor is and follows, he tells a story. And in the story, there's the trap. The story is a good Samaritan. This is from the Living Translation. And let me remind you of the story if you, uh, or tell you if you haven't heard it before. Jesus replied with a story. A, Jew, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they left him half dead besides the road. Now, by chance, a priest had come along. And when he saw the man there, lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. Wait. A temple assistant was walking by. A Levite walked over and he saw the man lying there, but he also passed over on the other side of the road. Now, the despi a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he felt compassion towards him. And going over to him immediately, he, the Samaritan smoothed, uh, soothed the wounds with olive oil and with wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to the inn where he took, him, where he took care of him all night. And then the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins and he said to him, take care of this man. And if there's a bill higher than this, then I'll pay it the next time here. Now Jesus says, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yep, now go and do the same. The answer to the question, what's the question? Who is my neighbor? The answer comes when Jesus takes this man out of, out of the academy, not giving him a, a, you know, a succinct definition, and he takes him into the real world the world of police officers and, you know, ambulance drivers and specialists that work in emergency rooms, real world where people get to be neighbors to one another. Who is my neighbor? And in this play that he's written, this script that he's written, the first two characters that walk across the stage and, and maintain center stage, man, these guys, a priest and a Levite. Okay, the, 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 the man in the dirt laying there nearly dead, he's going... These are the top-of-the-list type people that respond quite well to these circumstances. Because, I mean, right? This is, this, culturally, this is how they started the day. They woke up in the morning and they recited these two verses. 
love the, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. When they went to bed at night before they, you know, drifted off to sleep, they prayed this prayer. Lord, today I hope that I loved you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that I love my neighbor as myself. Oh, yeah. These two guys, the first ones, the priest or the, and then the Levite, they're going to be my neighbors. They were not. They didn't do anything. They were the most likely, but they went around him. And it's hard to say why. I mean, things we can know is these are reasonable men. They had reasons. And we can speculate they were probably, in light of what's happening in the context of this story, they were religious reasons. In the Old Testament, uh, both of these men would be involved in, in the maintenance and, and the duties involved in the temple. And if they touched something that was dead, they would be ceremonially unclean. They would be defiled. That would mean a lot of work for them. They would have to go to the temple and then offer sacrifice to be cleansed. They would have to have you know, time out until they could reestablish their ceremonial cleanse status. I, you know, they, I don't know. No one knows for sure. It's a story. You, you, what you do not know is why they would walk around. What you do know is this. The reason the, the, the story is told this way is you know this. That when the man is laying there nearly dead and the first person walks by, he's thinking, oh, he's going to be my neighbor. Be my neighbor. Be my neighbor. Be my neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? And he's not. And then the second man walks by and he goes, okay, this is where it gets good. Be my neighbor. Be my neighbor. Be my neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? No. And then, right, pause. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan walks by. Top of the list? No, he's not even on the list. The Samaritans were called dogs by the Jews. There was racial hatred towards these people. He, they didn't like them at all, and Jesus knew that. And so, but what happens in this story, it's the Samaritan that sees him laying on the side of the road and has compassion towards him and then does something about it. He immediately does something about that. And, and that's why this story kind of explodes in the face of those people, all the people listening. Almost, he has almost an entirely Jewish audience. And it's difficult for us to understand the gravity or the power of this little parable. Uh, think of it this way. I, I read a single sentence in one of the commentaries that I thought, oh, let's, let's spend some time there. Here's picture this. America, right? America in the 1850s. In the wild, wild west. Jesus is teaching, and somebody says, who's my neighbor? Okay, think of us, right? We're all dirty, covered in dirt, working horses and all that stuff, right? It's a, it's a Western now. There was a cowboy that was working his way towards Dodge City, and while he was crossing the Badlands, he was mugged. He was shot, stabbed, stripped naked, and left for dead. And while he was laying there, it turns out the mayor of Dodge City walks right by and sees him there laying on the ground and then walks around him. <laughs> That's okay, because after that, the pastor of Dodge City came, and he was riding his horse, and he looked down and saw him laying there and thought, yeah, and walked around. And then, and then, a Native American 
was walking down that path and he saw the cowboy laying there nearly dead and felt compassion towards him. And so he immediately jumped off his horse and he cared for his wounds and he took his own clothes from his backpack and he, and he covered the man and he put him on his own horse and walked him, picture this, this Native American walking this wounded cowboy into Dodge City to the saloon, gets him off the horse, walks him into the saloon, up the stairs, and rents a room where he stays all night caring for him. Next morning, the Native American walks down the stairs, tells the saloon owner and the hotel owner, here's two weeks' worth of coins. If you still need more, I'll be back. But take care of this cowboy. <laughs> Think about how nervous it must have been for that, right? And then so, so he's telling this story, right? This and then he says, okay, so uh, what do you want to call this? The story here. What do you want to call this? The good Indian? No one wants to call it the good Indian. No. So who's the neighbor? The one who showed compassion. Won't say the words. Look, don't get me wrong. Here's how Jesus should have told the story. This is how he could have won the audience, okay? The guy that was nearly dead, that guy should have been the Samaritan. And here's why. Because if that guy was dead, then the Jewish guy walks by, sees him there, has compassion for him, takes care of him, all that stuff. And then the name of the story is the good Jew. The good Jew. He even helped the Samaritan guy. We don't even like those guys. Good Jew. But no, that's not how the story goes. After a priest, after a Levite, then a Samaritan comes. And Jesus looks this man in the face, this scholar, this, you know, authority of the law, and says, which one is the neighbor? Like in a word, say the word. He won't say Samaritan. He can't. So he says, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> say the word, good Samaritan. Couldn't. Here's the funny part about this. What do you, we know this story as the good Samaritan story. No one says good Samaritan. It's not in the story because they can't say it. That's how, like, uh, prejudiced they are towards this. That's what Jesus is saying. The, 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 the point here is that you have to have a heart that sees. It's not what you know so much is the condition of your heart because that determines whether or not, like, what, what you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. That was the distinguishing trademark of this neighbor. The neighbor is seeing with compassion because of the health of his heart. He's the neighbor because of what he did. But what he did was based upon what he saw. And what he saw was based upon who he was and the health of his heart. He looked out and his, he had a heart towards humans. He had a heart towards other people's soul. A healthy heart, a healthy soul is looking out always looking for opportunities to help another human being that God has brought into their lives to say, here, here's a good work in Jesus Christ for you to do. It's so clear that this is the point that Jesus, for the point of clarity, Jesus uses the exact same word for all three characters as they're walking across this stage. He uses the exact same words and phrase. He saw him laying on the side of the road and walked around. The Levite saw him on the side of the road and walked around. The Samaritan saw him on the side of the road and felt compassion. And then everything else just took care of itself. 
What you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. Jesus is talking about the health of a human soul, a heart turned towards the love of souls, right? A healthy heart is, look, is looking at people as though they're in the image of God. I guess the other two men, the first two men, they, were, they had a heart towards religion, and that's why it makes sense to walk around. Look, let me give you an example of how, like, it's, it's what your heart's turned towards, right? What you're made for. Um, if, if you took me to an art gallery, that would not be smart. But if you were to take me to an art gallery, it would probably be because you love art, you studied art, you appreciate art, that sort of thing. And then you, we would go in there and you would maybe show me something that's, let's say, abstract. And you would say, that is art. I would say, uh, that's art? And then, like, later on, I'd go, okay, I get it now. That is art. And you would say, that is a Coke machine, Matt. Get out of this museum because I don't have a heart for art. See how that works? These people didn't have a heart for other human souls. Who you are determines what you see. What you see determines what you do. And Jesus is saying this, you know, do you have a heart for your neighbor? How do you become a neighbor? By having this heart. You have to, and this is appealing, you have to have God's spirit living in your heart and you have to be surrendered to that. What I'd like to do now is just look at this passage and make some observations and some applications to this particular congregation right here and now, okay? And the first thing is, at least in this story, it's, the first point is the real needs are right in front of you. The real needs are right in front of you. All three of these men, they were already on this road. They were doing what they would normally do. And Jesus, you know, in the story, God brings the needy people to where they're doing their thing. I think that is, that is the way it is still. When I look at this congregation, honestly, I can't think of a single person that would see someone laying on the road and be in that kind of condition and walk around them. I don't know in anyone in our church that has that kind of prejudice that would not consider helping another human soul, uh, if it, even if it were for prejudicial reasons. I, we just don't tolerate that. I can't imagine you liking to come here if you had that in your background or maybe you want to change. But here's, here's, what, I'm, here's what I'm proposing is that people are coming and are in your life right now, and God has worked all of his, like, his calling in people's lives, and I think they're right in front of us. They just don't, they're just very well-dressed. They shower regularly. They, they carry themselves well with confidence. When people come to, and I'm talking particularly right now, in church on Sunday, when people come here, they look like they've got their lives together. But I'm gonna try, I'm, what I'm trying to show you is their souls are in great need. There are other ways to be lying on the side of the road, beaten and battered and nearly dead. You can experience that with the loss of a loved one or a recent divorce or something in life is happening to you in such a way. And, if, and, and, you, and people find themselves in church. Why do people come to church? Think about that. Why would someone come to church? Why do people stay in church? That's another question. But why do people come? 
God's doing things in their lives. God's working on their hearts. Well, we found at, in some of our analysis, we have a couple people in our, on our staff now that just are really smart people, and they, they look at kind of our numbers. And we have found that over the last, I don't know, five years, anywhere from 700 to 1,200 people have visited our church, adults, that we know of. So it's probably more, much more than that. 700 to 1,200 people visit this church every year. And I think they're coming here because God's working on them. And I, my point is this, be their neighbor. Let's be the neighbor of the people that come here. Let me think, of, think let's think out loud a little bit. Like why do people come to church? There's different types of people. There's a non-religious person, right? They are either not concerned about spiritual things or haven't been, or maybe even irreligious. They had a, an ax to grind, maybe even atheistic in their background. How do they end up in a place like this? One of the reasons they come here to this church is because 140,000 people drive by every day. We're a very visible church. And so when God is dinging them, when he's calling them, when he's wooing them, they remember driving by here. Oh, yeah, that church on the hill with the crown. Yeah. And they come here. How? Usually, like, life circumstances, some kind of relationship thing happening. Some loved ones praying for weeks, months, years, decades. And they're finally getting to a place, whether it's a string of losses or a string of successes, where things happen in life where they realize, you know what? I have an eternal soul, and there's nothing temporal that can fill this. And they come in here, and they're nervous. They're not used to things that are religious. And maybe are a little bit nervous about even making eye contact with someone. But here's the thing. They're hoping, hoping. Would you be my neighbor? Be my neighbor. Please be my neighbor. Someone be my neighbor. I want to belong. I want to find a place where I can go through life and like learn. Learn about God's love for me. They want something more. Other people come because they're from out of town. We have one of the fastest growing cities and counties in the whole country. And when they come here, some of you have lived in the same place for so long, you might have forgotten. It's scary. You move to a town and you don't know anyone else you're, you're trying to find a community of people and the loneliness. Here's, I don't know if you've ever had this, but loneliness in a crowd full of happy people, it is especially bitter. Where everyone else seems to know where to go and how to enjoy life and you don't, it's, there's, it becomes even fear-filled. If you have children, I want my children to know people that I can trust them with. I would love to leave my children with a family where they would play together and they'd be safe. I'd love to know who to trust to be my doctor or my dentist or my mechanic. And when people come in here, I'm telling you, they are in need of a neighbor. And they're sitting around you. And they're thinking, oh, be my neighbor, be my neighbor, be my neighbor, be my neighbor, please. Sometimes people come to this church. It's been my experience. They come from other churches and something happened. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes they just get worn out. Some churches just, they, they wear you out. Sometimes it's a relationship thing and they come here either tired or whatever and they just, they want to be, they want to be safe. And they're praying, please be my neighbor. Someone in this place, be my neighbor. Be my neighbor, help me. Why do people come to church? Those are three reasons. Why do people stay in church? It's because they get connected. 
in relationships. They get connected with people they can go through life with, that their spiritual journey is not alone. I think that's where we need work. As, a, as the pastor of the church here, that's where we need to work. I think God is bringing us people. I think we are just on our journey and people are being brought here by God. We found out in this data analysis, we were shocked. Like one of the biggest times of visitors uh, coming is mid to late July. We did like what? We, we start getting ready for visitors in, at the end of August. Okay, never mind. And so here's, here's, here's what I'm suggesting. When I look at this passage and I look at the health of our congregation, here's what I think. Remember our saying, I'm just a pastor, but you're the... Okay, watch this. I'm just the pastor. You're the ministers at church, at church. I know it's really easy, especially on Sunday, because we are a regional church. You haven't seen some people for, you know, a week. Oh, wow, you live in South Austin. I'm up in Cedar Park, and let's get going. It's like, no, no, no. Right now, I'm a minister in my parking lot, in my lobby. I'm the minister in my area. Who are we kidding? You sit in the same seat every week, right? Come on. So you know when someone's moved into your territory. (laughs) So first, if they are sitting in your seat, don't hate them, okay? Okay, it's like inhale, exhale, inhale, okay. But like when someone moves into your, here's what I want you to do. You're the minister of your row, of your section, of your area. And the minute you see someone come in, especially as we're going to start seeing more people come visit us, you start praying. It's prayer, care, share all over again, but at church. And just pray for them. If they're like irreligious or nervous about being here and all that, they're going to bolt as soon as it's over. That's okay. Don't chase them, you know. Just keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. Pray for the people around you. Okay, if you look, so again, the first point is, is God brings people for you to care for, for you to be a neighbor to. And he's bringing them here. I'm just asking you to open the eyes of your soul right now. Second, it's going to cost time. It costs time. This guy, the Samaritan had places to go. And yet he, his heart was so tender that he, was, he not only saw compassion, but it, for me, this would be a big thing, but his compassion overruled his calendar. Anybody? No? Yeah, it's like, oh, I have things to do. Not today. Not today. There was enough margin so he could take that man into the inn, spend the night with him, and the next day go on with his to-do list, his places to be. And so sometimes that means you need to be flexible in your schedule. Here's what I would encourage you to consider every Sunday as you're being a minister, on your row, in your area, be willing to have lunch open. Hey, how's it going? Uh, You know, you're not, look, you don't like, you're new to my neighborhood right here. You're sitting on my row. No, it's not that. It's like, hey, how's it going? You get to know someone and then let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch. Let's get talking. Let's, let's figure out how I could serve you and be your neighbor. Third thing rolls right into that. It's money. It costs this man. He paid for the hotel. He probably gave him clothes off his back. He gave him two weeks worth of rent at the, ho- at the inn, and then he left his credit card. Just if There's a running bill. Put it on my tab. Being a neighbor, that's what money is for. 
Honestly, there is no better use of resources than to care for another human soul, to have a heart that sees things and does things and spends money. If you came in here and somebody was visiting and they were begging for a neighbor and you took them to lunch and you bought them lunch, <laughs> what better use of, a, uh, of resources? We have a newcomer lunch here. It's kind of expensive, actually. You know what the best use of money would be? Is if you, you were the minister's. And you took them to lunch. And when you take them to lunch, look, just where would they fit in best? If you can't afford to take them to lunch, bring the receipt. I'll figure out a way to reimburse you, okay? We will figure out a way to reimburse you. (laughs) All right? Just to be clear, all right? God's bringing you people. You need to have the time. You need to have the money. And I want you to hear this. Some of you need to hear this desperately. The fourth one thing that we learn principle is to delegate. Look how he delegates. The Samaritan, he's the good neighbor. He brings him to the inn, leaves the innkeeper with money, and then moved on with his life. Some of you need to hear this. You are not in charge of fixing the whole person from beginning to end right? From soup to nuts, right? You can delegate. You're, somebody's clapping for their wife, maybe. Yeah. Did you, did you hear that, honey? We don't have to adopt every kitten. So look, you're, we're like we're a giant family. We're all pieces in this giant puzzle. And so, so again, the Good Samaritan, just like he, your job is not to become the friend of the person necessarily on, in your neighborhood or on your row, but your job is to find a friend for the person in your neighborhood on your row. And so when you go to lunch with them and you find out what they're like and what their interests are, you, it's so easy to say, I know people like you. I know people that live in your neighborhood. I know people that kind of have your lifestyle or maybe that, that, that have kids in the same section. That's why we have life stage classes, right? I'll go and sit with you in this life stage class and then a couple other people will connect with you because they have kids the same age. You're gonna go through life together. In that context, right, you're sitting there having lunch. We don't get paid by commission here. So you just like, I know a great church for you. I don't, I'm not sure you're going to connect at Grace, but I know a great church, teaches the Bible. It's a, a lot more formal than Grace. I think, you know, Covenant Prez, That's I love that church. Covenant Prez right around the corner. That would be perfect for you. How do I help you? I'll go, to, I'll go to that church with you until, you know, you find some friends there. See how they delegate? See how he moves on? That's how you be a neighbor. That's how you, but again, it's God is bringing people into your life right now. Do you see it? Who you are determines what you see and what you see determines what you do. I'm just a pastor. You're the minister in your area, even at church. And the outline is simple. Prayer, care, share. That's how God works. That's how we show our love for God. And that's how we show our love for our neighbor. To have a soul that's well, that's focused out, that's caring for others and seeing how we could serve them. Listen to these sentences strung together. It is by grace that you've been saved by faith, not from works. It is a gift. No one should boast. So... Therefore, we are God's workmanship, created for good works in Jesus Christ that he has arranged before the beginning of time. Go, do that. 
be the neighbor. Be a neighbor. Healthy soul, looking out. How do I care for you? I'm not going to be manipulated by your attractive appearance and the fact that you shower and shave and all that. I know better. The Spirit of God has talked to me about you. You need help. How can I be your neighbor? You see? Let's do that. Let's do that. Right, Grace? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, what a great opportunity. The way you work in so many people's lives, the stories I know about people that you've brought here, that you called here. We have so many God stories that you are doing all the hard work and heavy lifting. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us become more aware of what you're doing in our midst, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to care. I'd ask that you would help us to become great neighbors to all the people that you've brought into our lives so that we might spend our time, our money, and our understanding on how to make uh, play a part in people's lives so that they might know you and enjoy you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.